Matthew 10. And Olivia, would you read 34 through 39? One more. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Thank you. This is uh, two passages or two verses that uh, people asked questions about or asked me to talk about. One, because of the first half of it, this concept of not peace but a sword. And then, secondly, the concept of cross bearing. Uh, but these two are closely tied together. Um, Think about, in context, Jesus has been talking about the broad mission of Christians in the world. What will it look like to go be kingdom disciples? If you remember that from the Sermon on the Mount, that extends into the next few chapters. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? Um, And so Jesus is talking about that here in large part because the disciples and the the crowds and many Christians today have such um, have so many misunderstandings about what to expect as a result of the Christian life. This is not a new phenomenon. People who are confused about the results of being a Christian goes all the way back to the very first disciples. <laughs> they were confused about what would come of following Jesus. And so Christ is most concerned throughout his ministry with spiritual realities. And people, we, are most concerned with physical realities, our circumstances, what we're experiencing right now. And so when people interact with Jesus and he says, follow me, what where their minds go is this will improve my circumstantial reality this will fix the things that i'm the most concerned about my life will get easier my life will have less sickness my life will have more money whatever it is there's all kinds of different uh manifestations of this but the idea is following jesus will make my experiential reality easier in some way And so what Jesus tries to do again and again and again is to show us or remind us that he is not most concerned with this life, this world, these circumstances. It's not that he's unconcerned about them, but it's that as he prioritizes them, spiritual concern, spiritual reality, the kingdom of, uh, of Christ, not the kingdom of this world, Uh, The life that is to come, not this life, is his greatest concern. And when the two come head to head, when the two are in tension, doing the thing that would make this life easier creates complications for the spiritual reality. 
He always picks the spiritual reality. He will always do the harder thing, the thing that makes this life worse, so to speak, if that's what's needed for eternity. That's what's needed for the heavenly reality. So Israel thought that the Messiah coming would bring them earthly peace. Their oppressors, Rome, would be overthrown. Uh, They would get to rule with a reign of peace. And this was not the case for them. In fact, Jesus says all this really frustrating stuff to them about submitting to the Roman authorities, about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar. Jesus even refuses to bring himself down off the cross as an act of submission to the Roman authorities. And that is not at all what Israel would have wanted to hear. So that's, that's part of what's happening here. Another part of what's happening here is because uh, the most essential division in life is invisible. Kingdom of Christ, kingdom of Satan. <laughs> Follower of Christ, follower of the flesh and sin and flesh and the devil, right? That that is an invisible distinction. We can't see it with our eyes, but it is the most important distinction in the whole universe with Christ, without Christ. Nothing is more significant or important than that. Because of that distinction, there will be as the fruit of that divisions that come that we can see. We will have conflict with others. There will be broken relationships. There will be very strong disagreements. There will be persecution. All of those things are the manifestation of the invisible division that took place. Just like in the first category we talked about, this too will surprise us. We will expect people to think like we think and to agree with us. And we will think that the closer someone is to us, the closer a friend, certainly family, absolutely certainly our children, the closer they are to us, the more they will think like we think, believe what we believe. But the division is an invisible one of with Christ or not with Christ. And so when those two are in conflict, just as when a difficult situation in life and doing uh, what's right in God's eyes come in conflict, Jesus always chooses God's eyes. He always chooses the invisible thing, the harder thing. Now, take that same metaphor and put it on your relationships. When a conflict comes that you're choosing between some sort of visible earthly connection, family relationship, close friends, alma mater, whatever it is, some reason where you think we should be on the same team here, co-workers, when that comes in conflict with the invisible reality of ultimate commitments, which will you choose? Will you maintain relationships because it's my son or my daughter? I can't ever not support them. Or will you maintain commitment to Christ, even to the point of division? He's not saying we go to war with our families. He's saying the division that is created in our experience by the division that already exists in the spiritual realm is unavoidable. He did not come to bring peace 
He came to bring division, a sword of division, so that we would see with our own eyes what is true in the heavenly reality. The moment you call someone's sin what it is, you are bringing the the sword of division up into the air. Now, if they're a believer and they agree with you, then it sort of stays there, right? But you know what it's like to confront someone with sin, with poor decision-making, and they don't agree, they don't believe, right? They're not followers of Christ, or they're not really willing to follow Christ. That sword comes straight down, and it divides the two of you, because you are truly at an impasse. That is an irreconcilable moment, because you're saying what you did was wrong because it's an offense against God. And what they're saying is, I, not God, get to decide what's right for me. Well, that, there is no useful conversation that comes as a result of that division. The only useful conversation is trying to overcome that division, submit to Christ rather than yourself. But you, you, you're not going to work out the details You're not going to come to a a mutually acceptable path forward when in the spiritual realm, invisibly, you are so far apart. People thought then and think now that the bond of family is the strongest bond. And Christ says that's simply not true. The strongest bond is a bond that is wrought not by blood and DNA, but by the Holy Spirit. The bond that unites you to Christ and therefore to other believers is far stronger than a bond of blood and genetics. Um, And so if you are not willing to break, this is one of the hard verses in this passage, if you're not willing to break the bonds of genetic obligation for the sake of the Holy Spirit's bonds, then you're not worthy of Christ. He's not saying you have to write off every unbeliever in your family. You can't have anything. He's not saying any of that. He's saying when the two come head to head and you're deciding between, will I speak up for the sake of Christ or will I lie to make peace? Will I do what is right in the eyes of God or will I just go along with the family to not pick a fight? When those come in conflict, when you say the bond of genetics is more powerful than the bond of the Holy Spirit, you are not worthy of Christ. That's not an unforgivable sin, but you need to recognize it as a sin. Fagan? So how do you deal with that conflict in the sense of, like, the believers in air quote, for a reason? You think those bonds should be yeah. tighter, and then there is conflict between truth. Like, how do you navigate that then? Yeah, my, my big guiding principles here are, number one, don't go looking for fights. So if you're trying to get someone to agree with you about a theoretical situation or a future decision, or just because you want them to agree with you intellectually, stop. That's looking for a fight. There are enough fights that will come up naturally in the course of living together that are unavoidable that we don't need to go looking for them. So my parents to this day do not believe what I believe about baptism, right? But how were they willing to come to the baptisms? Yes. Are they willing to not teach my children their wrong views of baptism? Yes. So why am I looking for more than that? If they want to talk about it, if I have the opportunity, right, they have some interest, and sure, that's a different thing. But the, I need you to understand what this baptism is, because when you're in that church, you got to, right, what? don't look for that. Uh, so that's principle number one. Principle number two is we need to 
feel as though our hands are tied because they are. And the way that can come out in our personality should be much uh, more dispassionate than we expect. I don't need to be angry with my relative that I have to, don't you understand that this is right and that's wrong? It's a much more, I, I understand where you're coming from. Where I'm coming from is I'm absolutely captive to the word of God. And so I, I can't do something else. I'm not trying to be difficult. I, I'm not trying to tell you, you know, you're a horrible person because you don't believe exactly what I believe. I'm just talking about me and what I have to do, my family and what we have to do. We're captive to our understanding of the word of God. And so that's why we do this. Um, and I'm sorry. I know that makes things more difficult, but I'm, I'm not sorry enough to deny the word of God. Uh, and so the thing with family is I don't know that I would try to have the broader discussion with them. I would look for the single events where I cannot do what they want me to do. And then as calmly as possible, with as narrowly focused an argument as possible, I don't believe scripture allows me to do that. Because last week we talked about, you know, not um, getting in an argument that you feel you're being baited. Mm-hmm. You know, which can happen easily in a family because they feel very com- yeah, they feel more comfortable. That's right. I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the um, that's one of the big traps of these discussions. Family tree, bonds of family tree, bonds of the church. Okay. We should not feel the same way. We should not feel the same level of comfort. We should not be willing to let our guard down equally. We should not be equally transparent. We've got to get in our heads that uh, we would want to think, we would want to believe that with our parents, with our children, with somebody that close to us, we can have the maximum level of transparency and vulnerability. But what somebody does with transparency and vulnerability is not based on how much of your DNA is related. It's based on the bonds you have in Christ, your ultimate commitments. And so your closest friends in this world, your closest advisors, the people that you really can let down your guard and and be you with may not be on that family tree. They have to be on the church tree. And now, God be praised. In some cases, they're both. (laughs) But in a lot of cases, they're not. And it makes us sad because we think, oh, this is my dad. I should be able to talk to my dad that way. Not if he's not a believer. Yeah. Yeah, I just have to keep going back to the fact that that as not believers, I can't have that expectation. That's right. And I want to. And so when we're bringing up things we disagree about, we can't have the same level of comfort, the same level of I don't have to be as careful with my words because I know you'll give me the benefit of the doubt. They won't give you the benefit of the doubt. Well, how many times do you want to run into that buzzsaw where you expect them to give you the benefit of the doubt and they don't? Uh, So that's a a great distinction there. So then that brings us to... You say the distinction between in the church and out of the church. Sometimes it's... In Christ and out of Christ. (laughs) We want to give them the benefit of the doubt. We think they're a Christian. That's right. They go to church, but... And that's... that's, mm -hmm. That's why I would fall back on my previous answer, which is... Don't try and solve the big theological issue of disagreement. 
give them the benefit of the doubt that when push came to shove with enough time and study because they're in Christ, they would end up right where you are. None of us has views that are what we believed when we first came into the faith, right? We grow, we mature, we learn. We, and not just th- that, that is manifest the most in the application section of our lives, right? Why do I do this behavior? Oh, it's because that thing that I've known for 20 years, but it wasn't until two years ago I realized that's how this thing should come to bear in my life. So when you're dealing with less mature Christians, with weaker brothers, um, just talk about the thing narrowly. Look, I do this because Scripture says that, and my understanding is this is what, I'm, what I need to do with that. This is the way that I can best honor Christ in light of that. Not, let me teach you about the narrative arc of the covenants and why your way is wrong. And the, no, 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 just as we think about these decisions, I just want you to see how I think. You don't have to agree with how I think, but here is how I think. And that's why this isn't just a matter of preference for me. Oh, I don't want to do that. I, I, I know it probably feels that way to you. Like, oh, you just want to do this instead of that. I, I understand it. But in a case like this, it's really not about my want. It's what I believe scripture compels me to do and, and keep it narrow. And again, 99 times out of 100, they won't agree with you. They won't respond much better to that than to if you had brought up the big theological thing and let it explode. You're not doing this because it's going to get you a better outcome. You're doing it because it's the right thing to do, because it's, it's the better approach. So then in all of that context, we get to the cross-bearing. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So this is about, in that context, the counterintuitive nature of the Christian life. What you want to take up is glory. What you want to take up is freedom from bad stuff. What you want to take up is triumph. Because that's what you think will get you ultimate triumph. And what Christ says is, no, no, you've got to take up a cross. Exactly the way he would. Right? You've got to choose when the two things come in conflict, my immediate comfort and happiness or my family relationships or something else that to the human eye looks like it matters most. And when that comes in conflict with the invisible thing that actually matters most, you've got to take the invisible thing even when you know the result of that is hardship, is shame, is trial, is suffering, is being made an outcast. Uh, is is uh, is receiving the world's contempt. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is off. We're not picking an easier path. We're not purposefully picking a harder path. We're picking the path of following Christ, come what may. That that's the distinction. So where people say, "Oh, you know, Christianity," you're just, you're just choosing suffering. You're not allowed to do anything that makes you happy. There's no joy. There's no, 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 no. We're choosing to follow Christ, ultimate joy, ultimate glory, in recognition of the fact that a consequence of that along the way may well be harder things. It may well be broken relationships and divisions for people who will not accept us because we follow Christ. Broken relationships. That's... Yeah, it's not like they're free from that, right? But you know what's funny is the reason they're not free from that, well, a reason they're not free from that, there are spiritual reasons too, but uh, is that nobody will live that way consistently. 
So what people try to do is live in this hodgepodge world where they mostly act selfishly, but then they mix in a bunch of altruistic stuff to make them feel better and alleviate their guilt and because they think that's the right thing to do. And that's why their relationships get broken and things get hard. The people who would live purely for self, just absolute, I seek my best interest and my own pleasure and nothing else, those people would have way happier lives. But nobody wants to live that way consistently. But the result is they get the worst of both worlds. They have this artificial, non-God-glorifying altruism and this guilt-ridden, partial pleasure-seeking. And it's like that life is way worse than either picking all for Christ or all for myself. Living in the middle is awful, and that's where 99% of the world chooses to live. All right. Matthew 12, it's got 22 to 32. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. All right, let's talk about two things. Let's talk about what is actually happening in the text, what Jesus is saying and what the people are dealing with in this situation. And then let's also, of course, talk about what is this sin that cannot be forgiven. Um, Jesus is casting out demons. And the accusation by the religious rulers is you have to have spiritual power, supernatural power to cast out demons. And because they don't want to believe that Jesus' power came from God, then they say that he casts out demons by the power of Satan. Those are sort of the two options for supernatural power. Jesus' ministry is obviously imbued with supernatural power. So where did that power come from is the question. And these religious rulers say it's not from God, so it must be from Satan. So first, Jesus endeavors on a logical argument. And he says, now let's think about that for a moment. We all agree that these demons are of the power of Satan. This is where Satan wants these demons to be, is in these people. And so if I am essentially one of Satan's demons, and I am casting out Satan's demons, then that house is divided against itself. That's not going to stand anyway. There's no real power there. Isn't it more reasonable that if I'm casting out the demons that Satan wants to be there, I had to first bind the strong man. I had to bind Satan. That is, I had to limit Satan's power so that I could exercise my own power 
uh, plundering the strong man's house example. So Jesus is making a, a logical argument with the religious rulers that what they're accusing him of doesn't even make sense. Can't, can't pass philosophical muster. But then he says, the fact that you believe that, the fact that you want to believe that, the fact that you accuse me of that reveals something about you. And it reveals your contempt, your hatred for the power of the Holy Spirit. You hate the Spirit of God so much that if someone is using the Spirit of God, if someone is is under the power of the Spirit of God and you don't like them or you don't like what they're doing, you will call the Spirit of God Satan. You will look at the work of God himself and say, I don't like that. That is Satan's work, not God's. What comes out of their mouths is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that they would attribute to Satan what is the Holy Spirit's, vice versa. That the sin is not that it came out of their mouths. The sin is that it flowed from the heart. They had such contempt for the Spirit of God that even when the Spirit of God is at work in front of them in ways that no reasonable person could deny, Jesus just explained logically the only possible rational explanation for someone being able to cast out demons is that the power of God enabled them to cast out demons. There's nothing else that works. And they hate the Spirit of God so much, they're willing to say, or the power of Satan, because you don't have the Spirit of God. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The divine character of Jesus' ministry is unmistakable. He casts out demons. They never return. He came with the authority and the power of God himself. He bound the strong man forever, Satan himself. So you have to keep in mind how self-evident this is. And that's why this is so important for thinking about how Christians worry about this sin and whether or not this is something we could do. We start from a place of being afraid that this is a this is a confusing situation. There's just a lot of confusion. And you could stumble into this sin just by confusion. This sin isn't confusing at all. Jesus' power is self-evident. And so to to see that thing, which is obvious, and to be so hardened against the Spirit of God that you will attribute it to Satan and associate the Spirit of God with Satan, that hardness, which in this case, incidentally, came from the resident Bible experts, uh, that is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. When people know the Scriptures well, when people have every reason humanly speaking, to believe that they are true. And what they say is, I don't want to believe it. That's not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is perilous ground. That is trending you toward inviting a kind of hardening from God, 
where you will ultimately become so self-righteous as the religious rulers were here, that you don't just say, I'm making my choice, I don't want to believe it. You're actually saying, I don't believe it because that is evil. When you look at the spirit of God and you say the reason you don't believe is not my choice, I don't believe, it's that it's evil. Now you've crossed over into what this story is about. Um, This is not just an occasional bad thought, faithless thought, rebellious episode, anger against God. Christians do all of these things. They're sin. This, though, is a, a final hardening that comes as the result of a persistent, deliberate rejection of the Lord's work. Um, You can never do this by accident. So there's two things I would say to comfort you. You can never do this by accident. And if you feel the least bit of guilt about any thought you've ever had or any words you've ever said that might be in this category, you have not committed the sin. By definition, you will not feel guilt or shame for this sin. You will feel the most righteous of all. So it, it's just not a thing. When I say it's not a thing Christians need to worry about, I mean it's not a thing that we will stumble into. It's not a thing that we have committed in our past. It is a reason to be ever Uh, vigilant and attendant to the word of God. It is a reason to think carefully about the passages we read before this and a willingness to bear cross and a willingness to have division among those that we love for the sake of Christ. Life is about one single choice. Follow Christ or reject Christ. All of life is under that umbrella. And then when you choose to follow Christ, there'll be moments where we follow him poorly and moments when we follow him well and we'll improve over time. And all that stuff is the messiness of the Christian life of sanctification. And if you choose against Christ, there's lots of gradations in that too, right? You could be Hitler or you could be a really, really, really nice person who just hates Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's all going to come back to followed Christ, didn't follow Christ. And that's what these divisions are about. And then this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this recalcitrant, self-righteous justification of choosing against Christ. I chose against him because he is evil. That's what the religious rulers are saying. Why don't we support Christ? Because he's evil. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When you, when you believe that in the face of the self-evident power of God, that's, that's not something God forgives. Now, why does he not forgive it? In one sense, there's nothing to forgive. If he gives faith, you won't commit the sin. If you commit the sin, you're not looking for forgiveness. So what is there to forgive? It's not like the unforgivable sin is stealing a car. I stole a car, and then 50 years later, I have all this remorse and this regret, and I beg God for forgiveness. And he says, look, I'd love to forgive you, but it's on the list. I don't forgive car thieves. It's not that. It's a, those who commit this sin will never, ever, ever, ever seek forgiveness. And therefore, it will never be forgiven. All right, who's got uh, Matthew 13, 10 through 17? Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, 
But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, to understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. All right, again, two things we need to answer, two questions about this passage. What's happening? What's Jesus talking about? What's the point he's trying to make? And then the second question that came up about this passage was, why would it have been a bad thing for those people to hear and understand? Why wouldn't, wouldn't it be better if more people heard? And more people understood, more people had eyes to see. Um, But what Jesus is teaching here is the doctrine of election. We, in the flesh, don't like this doctrine at all. uh, Because we love the doctrine of American fairness which says everybody should get exactly the same opportunity, right? That's, that's what needs to be equal here is opportunity. Everybody should be in the same boat. And God's response to that is, yeah, yeah, you are all in the same boat. You're in this giant boat of death, <laughs> sin, and condemnation. You, you freely chose to put yourself in the death boat and you're all in there together. And in that boat, nobody sees clearly. Nobody hears. Nobody believes. Nobody has understanding. Everybody is just happy as clams sailing toward death, which we deserve and which would be fair and which we all would get. Uh, so we are all in that same boat. But what, what God chooses to do because he is God is take some people who are only seeing what they want to see and hearing what they want to hear no matter what words are used no matter matter how clear it's made they're seeing what they want to see and hearing what they want to hear and God plucks them out of this boat and says let me give you new eyes and new three ears <laughs> barriers monkey ears I don't know God says let me give you new eyes and new ears and say the same thing and see what you hear this time oh now I hear what's true now I see what's real can't see it when you're in the death boat Not because it's not available to you. Exactly the same thing is available to you. You won't see it. You won't hear it. You refuse. And so he says, let me me pull you out of that. Let me give you new eyes. Let me give you new ears. And now look. And now listen. Um, 
Christ's teaching is not difficult to understand on an intellectual level. There, there's no great hidden mystery about the Christian faith. There's no educational requirement that until you've reached this level of understanding, you can't possibly be a Christian. You can't possibly believe. This is one of the many reasons you will find that our session is operates counter to many other churches when it comes to our children. Right? We're not looking for our children to reach a certain age or a certain amount of education or understanding to say, now you are enough to participate in the Christian faith. We believe that whether or not our children are active participants in the Christian faith has nothing to do with the brains that have formed biologically in their heads and everything to do with the new eyes and ears that we hope God has given them. And yes, as we grow and develop and learn, it's just like we said earlier. You become more Christ-like. You get more application figured out. You have more wisdom. But that is not a function of age. It's a function of experience and faith, of revelation and faith, of God working in us. Um, there will be people, This, I mean, just we're getting real broad here on this issue, but Think about membership in the church. Think about coming to the Lord's Supper. And what are the requirements for that? And you think about different churches you've been in in the past and kind of what were the rules for who gets to come and who doesn't come. And, and most churches, it's some version of, if you're an adult, you have an oral examination for membership. Are you a Christian? And if we figure out you're a Christian, then we let you be a member and automatically because you're a member and an adult, you come to the table. And then for children... We give you a test. Do you have enough knowledge? And if you pass the test, then we let you come to the table. What do you do with a nonverbal person? What do you do with a special needs person who's not going to be able to communicate to you externally either their affirmation of the Apostles' Creed or the answers on the test that you want to give them? What do you do with a person that's got some sort of intellectual disability? or some sort of physical disability where that's not something they can do. Well, if you say that your participation in the covenant community is based on your ability to articulate the answers, you're trapped. And what you're saying is your participation in the covenant community is marked or represented or contingent on something in you, something you bring to the table. As opposed to if you say, no, 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 your ability to participate in the covenant community is about what God did in you. And yet, in most cases, I can get some affirmation, some satisfying words from you that persuade me that that's true. But in the cases where I can't, I'm not trapped because I know that God can do all things. I know that God can give you new eyes and ears of the Spirit, even if He never gives you the brain and the mouth that can persuade me of that. Babies that are lost in infancy or, or miscarriages. How do I know if that child's saved? I don't. But I know this. <laughs> it has to do with whether God gave the child the eyes and ears of faith and not anything that that child did 
And God can do all things. And God is as capable of regenerating an infant in the womb, an embryo in the womb, as he is my nine-year-old in in a Sunday school class. (laughs) I don't need those circumstances for God to work because what I'm believing is in the work of God, not the work of myself. And so what this text is about is what Jesus was wholly dependent on and what Isaiah told the people to be dependent on was not the words of the preacher, but the work of God. And you might think that if Jesus had given people, you know, exactly the 10 steps necessary for faith, they would have believed them all and they would have followed them all. And Jesus says, that's not why anybody believes. You're not blessed because you figured out the 10 steps. You're blessed because God pulled you out of the boat of death, gave you new eyes and ears, and you hear what there is to be heard. You see what there is to be seen, what others reject. Um, People's problem is not a lack of understanding. People's problem is moral hardness. They want what they want, and they do not want what God wants. They know what Jesus teaches, but they do not believe it. They will not follow. And so the parables that Jesus talks about here, they don't create fresh unbelief in sinners. They confirm the unbelief that's already present. The fact that they can't make heads or tails of these parables is not because the parables are so confusing. It's because they don't have ears to hear. It's because they are opposed to Jesus's teaching. And apart from that grace of God pulling us out and giving us new eyes and ears, we would all be opposed. Matthew Henry has a great quote about parables. They make the things of God plain and easy to those willing to be taught and difficult and obscure to those who are willfully ignorant. You hear what you want to hear. You hear what your ears allow you to hear. And the ears of the flesh, these parables aren't going to make any sense. The words of God aren't going to make any sense. You're going to be opposed to them. But if you have the eyes and ears of faith, then they make things more clear, easier to understand. Does that make sense? This one's, this one's real quick. Go to Matthew 16. It's got 24 to 28. Uh, John? Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So there's a lot of different uh, things in this passage that we might have questions about, but some of them we've already covered, right? The ability of uh, people to do difficult things for the sake of Christ, the willingness that for the sake of following him, we would inspire uh, hardship. Um, He also tells this particular generation, these disciples, that the things that he's just described in the Olivet Discourse, um, they won't die until they see those things come. So it's a little bit of a pep talk that Jesus is giving to the disciples here of, look, it's going to be hard. There's rough stuff coming, but you will persevere 
to the end of this. You will see the things that I'm describing. This, by the way, this text is a big reason why uh, the view I described as partial preterism, the idea that a ton of what Jesus is talking about here is AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem. This text really supports that and, and tends you toward that, that direction, that they would see the destruction of the temple. They would see the people fleeing into the mountains. They would see uh, the abomination of desolation. Um, so Jesus is encouraging them. He's giving them uh, a pep talk. He's talking about the events that will lead into his kingly reign. The transfiguration in chapter 17, when Jesus is seen in partial glory and receives the blessing of the Father. His resurrection, which is itself sort of the the magnum opus of glory. And then his ascension that will come later, where he's seated to the right hand of the Father. So these these events regarding Jesus' glory are supposed to give the disciples the, the fuel they need, the motivation they need to persevere through a bunch of hardships that are going to come. And that's important for us too. Jesus is not saying you should take up your cross because that's easy. He's not saying you should follow me and yeah, that'll involve some hardship, but who cares? Life's short. Like all the trivial stuff we would try to say to minimize hard stuff about life, all the sentences that start with, well, at least you... Right. You know those sentences where, well, you know, there was a terrible car accident that killed my whole family and I'm responsible because I was driving too fast and I got home and I lost my job and blah, blah, blah. And somebody says, well, at least you have your health. <laughs> so what, are you hearing anything? Life has really, really, really hard stuff in it. And Jesus doesn't say that stuff's not that hard. Jesus says, no, no, no. That's cross bearing level stuff. That's really hard stuff. But go through that stuff with your eyes fixed on the glory that is to come. And specifically to the disciples, they'll get to see evidences of that glory rolled out in stages. And then we get to look back at the whole of Scripture and say, wow, that's even more glory than they knew or than they saw with their own eyes. That's what Jesus says in Acts about sending us the Holy Spirit is that we'll see more clearly than even the disciples saw. He can teach us things that even they hadn't yet grasped. Um, So that is what enables the disciples to do what they did. I mean, I talked a few weeks ago about um, if this was a conspiracy and Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead. It's insane that not one of these disciples would have flipped that they were willing to endure the hardships and ultimately the deaths that they did for what they knew to be a lie. But now look at the other side of that coin, which is even knowing that it was true. Can you imagine doing what they did? Can you imagine that level of giving yourself over entirely to Christ, that you sign up for trials and hardships and persecutions and beatings and martyrdom. How in the world did the men of the first two-thirds of the Gospel of Matthew become the men who did that? And the answer is this. The answer is they saw the glory of Christ. And once you see the glory of Christ, it does not make life easy, but it makes the path you have to take very clear. It's a very bright path 
We know when we deviate from it. That's why we feel shame. That's why we know our sin when we see it. We know when we deviate from that path because we have seen the glory of Christ and the path is so clear, not easy, but clear. And that's, uh, that'll flow in nicely into the sermon in terms of what is the will of God for us to follow. It is a very clear path. We confuse it and muddle it and overcomplicate it. It's very clear.